The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 154 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is identity theft and vulnerable family members, what family caregivers should know. Identity theft occurs when information that identifies us, such as social insurance numbers, credit card numbers, and healthcare system identity numbers, is stolen and then used to defraud or abuse us in other ways. Here's an example from a court case which involved women posing as social workers visiting elderly seniors, mostly widows. The women would first get detailed and sometimes confidential information about the seniors. Then they would phone the seniors and pretend to be from a prominent local hospital, a government department or a service for seniors. The women would then make an appointment for a home visit, supposedly to check on the seniors' welfare. Uh, The women actually stole credit cards, debit cards or checks while the seniors' backs were turned, often to make a cup of tea. Now, before the seniors aged 78 to 92 realized their cards were missing, these had already been used for purchases at local stores or for cash withdrawals from ATMs. Six of the seven seniors lived alone. One lived with an infirm spouse. He, too, was defrauded. Now, one of the many, many concerns raised by this and similar instances of identity theft is how the women obtained the detailed knowledge of the seniors' personal and health information. Now, to talk about identity theft and vulnerable family members and what family caregivers should know, our guest today is Krista James. Now, Krista is the National Director of the Canadian Centre for Elder Law and a staff lawyer with the British Columbia Law Institute. Her work involves policy analysis, legal research, law reform, public legal education and providing advice to government on legal matters impacting older people and family caregivers. She works with people from healthcare, law, labor, finance, and justice. She's written and spoken on abuse and neglect of older people, financial elder abuse, financial literacy, adult guardianship, mental capacity, and family caregiving. She was the lead author of the Center's study about law reform to support family caregivers to balance paid work and unpaid caregiving. 
She's currently developing educational materials for older people and practitioners and volunteers who work with older people. And prior to joining the centre, she practised labour law. She's worked with legal clinics, women's centres and community organisations serving low-income people. So welcome to the show, Krista. Thank you, Gordon. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, first question. Please tell us more about your personal background, your professional career and the experience you have of family caregiving. Sure, and you've already said a little bit about my practice at the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, but I joined the Canadian Centre for Elder Law in 2007, so I've been there just over five years. I started out my legal career working with nonprofits and a lot of different vulnerable populations, so I was a legal aid lawyer initially. And I like to say that when I start out, to give you a sense of, I'm in in a way I'm not a typical lawyer, I've never worked in a corporate environment, I've always sort of worked with populations of people with disabilities, um, women's organizations, trade unions. I think that sort of shapes my perspective on how I look at different issues. Um, Personally, uh, caregiving has always been kind of, and also elder abuse, have both always been close to my heart. My mother was, in a sense, um, uh, a victim of elder abuse. And and as a solo single parent, I've been a caregiver of, you know, for a long time, and I was, in a sense, a caregiver of my mother when I was uh, a, a child or a youth. Now, tell us more about the work of the Canadian Centre for Elder Law. The Canadian Centre for Elder Law has a pretty broad mix of work, but everything we do is connected to law or social policy. So we do law reform work, which is basically looking at the law and thinking about how it might need to be improved or changed to better respond to the issues impacting older people in Canada. We do legal research, which means figuring out what the law is or says. We do public outreach, raising awareness about these issues and things such as talking on this radio program today. And we also develop educational tools. And educational tools, by that I mean we're a lot of translating legalese into plain language. So we produce brochures, um, fact sheets, videos, booklets, all sorts of resources that are available for free from our website that provide people with information about what their rights and responsibilities are. Now, let's, let's ask you this question. What, what is elder law and how is it actually used for protection of seniors? Yeah, elder law is a pretty big and broad subject matter. And I like to think of it as, in a sense, any area where the, of the law that impacts on the rights or the well-being of older people. And so that could be privacy law, health care law, family law, wills and estates, and those are all legal areas that impact on people regardless of the age. But when we're doing elder law, we're looking specifically at legal and social impacts on older people. A law could be neutral, but it might affect a senior differently than someone else. So to give you a more practical sense, some of the ish topics that we've looked at over the years are family caregiving, laws in relation to elder abuse, We've looked at, you know, congregate living settings like retirement homes and seniors' residences. We have a project right now focused on older women that involves consulting with older women in their communities about what are the most pressing social and legal issues impacting them. And we put on conferences. Right now we're starting to develop a tool on seniors' fraud. 
and we've looked at guardianship and elder and guardianship mediation. So that just gives you a sense of some of the topics that we've looked at that fall into that big bucket called elder law. Let me just ask you about privacy law. Uh, you know, in the uh, intro, I was talking about that case where these two fraudsters appeared to have access to or had access to very personal information of the seniors that they were going to rob, defraud, and some of it seemed to be health information. So what about privacy laws? How protective are they in general of that kind of information of seniors and seniors particularly with health vulnerabilities? Privacy law is a really big quagmire when you start talking about elder abuse and fraud and seniors' rights. And I think we look at it on both ends. There is the important piece of protecting seniors' privacy, but there also is the piece around how we respond to concerns about fraud or abuse and neglect and how we need to make sure those responses are respectful of seniors' rights. You know, I, I, um, I know we're talking about the protection of seniors in this program, and I kind of like to put the word protection in quotes because I'm conscious of how the language of protection can sometimes infantilize seniors or suggest they need more protection than others when lots of seniors are very robust and sophisticated. Some seniors are more vulnerable than others, also some other people are more vulnerable than others. So I'm I'm always a little bit uncomfortable about business of protection, although we do need to keep people in our communities safe. So one of the themes that comes up a lot, actually, in terms of privacy law around seniors these days is actually the opposite problem of, if you're concerned about an older person, how can you respond in a way that protects all his or her other private information? You know, how can we respond in ways that don't go around people's rights? I think Seniors have a lot of fear about losing control over their lives, and losing control of your private information is a part of that puzzle. And it's certainly true that, and it's notorious, isn't it, that families can get into a great deal of difficulty, problems, challenges, when it comes to family money and disputes over that. And yes, sadly, there are cases, I'm not speaking as a lawyer here, but instances known to most of us where things have gone wrong financially. At the same time, though, Krista, um, the notorious uh, vulnerability of aging is Alzheimer's disease, dementia, where whatever it is, whatever that process is, the senior is deprived of their mental faculties in a way that starts slowly, that progresses, and in the end is enormously disabling. So that then the comes the question of protection, whether it's by family caregivers or any other system, of people whose health condition, let's say mental health condition, makes them unduly vulnerable to identity theft and related things. Absolutely. I think that it's, you know, different populations can be vulnerable in different ways, and that puts different pressures on family members and government and other social institutions to keep an eye open and have systems for responding when someone has been harmed or might be at risk of being harmed. That's um, 
I think, profoundly important um, because there's nothing so heartbreaking as a senior who's trusted someone on the outside or even on the inside um, then to discover that, you know, the, the money has gone, they've been defrauded. And even if the money is made good to them by the bank or the credit card company, what they've lost is trust at a time of life when you got to have trust. Trust's important. And so in that sense, there's not just a legal issue, and I, <laughs> I'm saying this carefully to you, there are social issues which have to be considered in relation to justice and, and, and caring for family caregivers by, sorry, for family members by family caregivers and by society. Now, that was a bit of a speech because it's taking us now to the break because this is where, as I always say, we have to pay the rent. Um, so we're going to take the break and we will come back and continue discussing this important, these important questions. This is Dr. Gordon Adler and my guest is Krista James. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover, and have they got stories to tell. Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Krista James. Our topic is identity theft on vulnerable family members, what family caregivers should know. Let's talk now, Krista, about the ways in which identity theft occurs and how it harms seniors and their families. So first, Krista, please, what are the commonest ways in which a senior's identity is or can be stolen? Well, identity fraudsters will try to approach 
a potential victim from various routes. But they might come to your door, they might phone you, or they might email you. But we get a sense that seniors are most often targeted by telephone. And so a person will get a phone call from someone offering something and the way to, to and they're and are being asked to rep- provide some personal information. So seniors' identities are generally taken from them when they provide personal information to an, a person who is intended to take advantage of them. And the kind of personal information that is, I think, most commonly used to steal someone's identity is credit card information or information on your social insurance number. These are key numbers that can be used to trace back to you and try to steal your identity and then your money. Now, you mentioned stealing the money. What are the commonest types of harm that results to a senior whose identity has been stolen? Yeah, well, obviously the most obvious kind of harm when your identity is stolen is that the fraudster can use your information to get access to your assets and your your savings. Um, this could be getting access to cash in the bank and removing it, or they could use your other assets. Like they can try to remortgage your home, and you can find yourself having lost the, the residence, which I think losing your home for seniors is – not just a financial loss, it's a hugely devastating emotional loss. But the other piece is that while the most immediate loss is financial, I think for seniors, that financial loss is even more devastating than a younger person losing the same amount of money because we all know that when you're older and you're living primarily on a fixed income or savings, it's harder to recover from a financial loss. You don't have the same income earning power that your younger counterparts have. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. As we've discussed earlier, Gordon, financial loss or identity theft has huge emotional impacts. When someone's been taken advantage of in that manner, they often wind up feeling extraordinarily vulnerable after. And I think a lot of seniors already feel kind of vulnerable because they're not as robust as they used to be. And there's a lot of shame and embarrassment associated with being taken advantage of. Fraudsters are incredibly sophisticated, but we still often feel silly and stupid for being duped. And then I think the other piece I'd want to add about that, although I've been talking for a couple minutes now, is I think that we, technology raises fears and anxiety for a lot of people. And this idea that our information can be stolen by a phone call or an email, having actually experienced that raises our general kind of anxiety in our daily lives. And for seniors, we know that loss, huge financial losses results in increased mortality and risk of other health consequences when people can't meet their health care needs. On the subject of health care needs, Krista, one of the uses of identity fraud is, and this is a very difficult topic to talk about, but it's very real, is where people who are not entitled to health care in Canada or in parts of the United States, um, where their identity is stolen by somebody who may not be entitled, and then the person who's not entitled uses the uh, identity to receive medical care. Now, the risk there is obvious that, you know, if you get a blood transfusion and um, 
it shows the blood uh, structure, the the nature of the the blood uh, of the uh, guy who stole our identity, that could cause us to lose our lives. Um, and there are other things like drug allergies and all sorts of things, which mix-ups, which can cause medical errors, but they're not really medical errors. They're a question of the effect of, um, you know, identity theft. Now, Krista, that was a rather long-winded thing, but have you come across any of this kind of problem, that is substitution of people um, on the basis of stolen identity. Well, my res—I haven't done a lot of research on that issue. I am aware that in the United States, especially where there's less publicly funded healthcare available, that stealing healthcare numbers is a huge issue. Um, in terms of the potential health impacts that you discuss, it. it I hadn't actually thought of that issue, but it seems totally logical. Those kind of health consequences that could flow from stealing and getting access to someone's health care number. Right. Um, we'll star that as something that um, perhaps needed a little more discussion, but not necessarily right now. Krista, what are the common, commonest types of harm that result to the family of a senior whose identity has been stolen? I think with with harms like with the harm to the senior, there's a mix of financial and non-financial harms. So the most obvious is that a, a, when a, a senior loses a, a sizable chunk, it increases their financial or, you know, or starts them from becoming financially dependent on a younger person in their family when before they might have been much more able to meet all of their expenses. So it puts more financial strain on the family. I think it also puts these different can put these different kind of pressures on the family members who are often really quite burdened with care for maybe various family members to increase the surveillance and scrutiny and support for this older person to make sure they're insulated from any other episode of financial abuse or identity theft. There's already a strong desire to to help keep a family member safe. And when they become a victim of abuse, everybody is on extra vigilance to keep this person safe. I think what what we see socially is that seniors are often kind of pulled on either end. Um, They become, their finances are often part of the overall family planning, whether that be good or not. Whenever a senior loses funds, that people start worrying about their inheritance, they start worrying about what's gonna happen to the family home, Everybody becomes stressed about this issue. Now, what about the situation where a senior is living alone? There's still family caregiving involved, uh, calling to check up on them, that kind of thing. But sometimes, quite often, there's a distance, a geographical distance between the senior living by themselves and the family itself. What are the kind of situations there that would lead you lead you to comment particularly on the type of harm that can result or the or the liability, if you like, to the harm? Well we all, we there's a lot of controversy around what makes a person more vulnerable to abuse. But one of the themes that we know of is that the more isolated a senior is, the more vulnerable they are to abuse. 
and also to other declines in health where they don't have support. I think it puts a lot of pressure on family members to provide this support when they're providing care across distance. It's much easier to check on your mother or your father if you live a block away than if you live a plane ride away. Are you aware of any sort of systems, um, this may be outside the scope of the Canadian Centre for Elder Law, but are you aware of any systems that do help family caregivers at a distance from their elderly uh, senior family member, um, help them keep an eye on what's going on, be there to give advice and generally monitor the situation? Krista? I think that what we would, what does exist are different kinds of support networks that a senior can tap into. There is an organization, for example, called, I believe, TYZE, T-Y-Z-E, that started out of Vancouver and that supports um, family members to create networks for maintaining communication with a person in their family, either someone, a young person's disabilities or an older person who requires extra support and assistance. So different kind of communication networks. But I think it's what we do know is that seniors who are isolated are vulnerable. So anything a caregiver can do to help that senior stay connected to people in the community, people who provide support, but who also notice if something goes awry and help the senior or the family member to respond quickly. Any of those kind of mechanisms are going to help keep the senior safe. And that could be something as old-fashioned as the church, or it might be a community organization, or it might be in BC, the BC Association of Community Response Networks. It could be formal or less formal. So it could come to a community organization. You you mentioned a church, a community organization arising from a church or arising out of other local initiatives where people keep an eye on the vulnerable members of the community uh, and not just the family caregivers. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting the family caregivers are pushed out of the way or are irrelevant, but rather it's a kind of extension of family caregiving. Does that work in your knowledge? Absolutely. Like, interestingly enough, the other day I was at a consultation event with older women as part of our Older Women's Dialogue Project. And at the end of the event, I asked the women in the group, what is the... What are you aware of as being the thing in your life that helps you maintain well-being? What is the most important thing in your life? And almost every single woman in the group said the community center and the seniors programming. And most of these women were either volunteering or attending programs. And this is the thing that was one of the major pieces of sort of glue that kept them connected and feeling like they were engaging in, you know, meaningful lives post-retirement. That's very interesting because loneliness, which is the other face of that particular coin, isn't it, um, mm-hmm. is, is a problem for the kind of people you were just describing. And it's also a problem for family caregivers who are suddenly confronted with, let's call it a medical diagnosis, on relating to a senior they're caring for of Alzheimer's disease and they I know from many things I've heard on this show that people feel alone people feel uh, that they don't know where to turn for information and they want to be connected with the community of other family caregivers so in that sense and this is to reinforce what you just said about uh, the people you were talking with community 
is really the most one of the most profound influences uh, and I know I'm lecturing at a time when we all tend to be working in big systems and thinking big thinking small in other words is a very valuable um, uh, I think uh, social social movement uh, now I know I'm lecturing but it is that time when we have to take the break so this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Krista James. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to... To family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Krista James. Our topic is identity theft and vulnerable family members, what family caregivers should know. So let's talk now, Krista, please, about preventing theft of identities of seniors and what to do if a senior's identity seems to have been stolen. So first of all, um, I'm going to ask you now about the protections that the Canadian Centre for Elder Law advises for family caregivers caring for elderly family members. What does the centre have to say, in other words? Krista? Well, I think the, the most important issue is to provide seniors and family caregivers with information, basic, clear information on what their rights are, because protection after the fact is not very powerful in this area. Once someone has taken your money, they've taken your money, and it can be hard to get it back. So the best way to protect seniors and family members from this kind of attack is to provide information. And the most key piece of information that we reinforce over and over again is keep certain information private. And the most important information to keep private in terms of protecting yourself from identity theft is those 
personal identity numbers that are traceable back to you and all your other information. So we're talking about your credit card number, your bank account number, your social insurance number, your um, medical care number. These are four pieces of information that are a gateway to a whole bunch of other information about you. But there are some key features around how to I think share that information about how to protect yourself. And we've been running into this issue with doing a fair amount of consultation with people in in Vancouver and British Columbia is that you you need to be conscious about how you give this information to populations. We have seniors populations are not necessarily super computer literate. There's variety in terms, you know, the boomers are more literate, but a lot of seniors are not on the computer learning about their rights. They want to be given a piece of paper. They want to talk to somebody to get their information. And we also have to be conscious of seniors have lower levels of, of literacy as well as they speak different languages. They're not necessarily going to benefit from information provided in English. It seems that English can be a real gateway to information. We've been speaking recently with a lot of Chinese and um, South Asian communities and finding that for a lot of them, they don't even know basic information about how to contact the police if something has happened because they don't even know about 911. They don't know how to have a conversation in English with the police, and so they feel further isolated by language barriers. And that makes them exceptionally vulnerable if some someone in their own language comes along with a, a story uh, that's seeking their identity, um, their identity information. Um, and they really, neither they or perhaps even members of their family know where to go or where to even ask questions or even where to raise concerns. Um, thank you for raising that. That's profoundly important. I think now, another reason why immigrant seniors are also especially vulnerable is that they d- aren't necessarily aware of the cultural conventions around sharing information. So sometimes they have a harder time saying no if someone's demanding their personal information. They already maybe come from a country where they have fear of persecution, and they may have fear of the police, and they may have fear of doing anything that's going to give displeasure to someone coming to their door, so they cooperate. Right. Now, let's talk about the types of services that your center advises for banks government agencies, law enforcement and healthcare services, um, where the advice is aimed at getting those organizations to help seniors protect themselves, kind of thing we've just been talking about, and also to help families protect their vulnerable family members. Yeah. Um, in terms of providing information, I think it's really helpful if, if banks and government and and other organizations appreciate the family dynamics connected with um, caregiving and seniors, understand the sort of interdependency, and they understand the sometimes shared family decision-making, but also individual privacy rights around your information, even within that family structure. So um, that's sort of a bit of a maybe backstory on how to work with families and seniors in providing information. But I think that all of these organizations have the same responsibility is to provide information to communities about and individuals about how to protect themselves. And also in a way that's not fear-mongering. 
I think one of the concerns that I have, there's been recently been a fair amount of promotion around elder abuse and also of fraud. And I think we live in a sort of cultural environment now where people have fear and we need to be conscious that the educational campaigns we're producing that are designed to help people protect themselves aren't creating further a culture where people live in fear. People need to be provided with resources for responding as well as information about what they are vulnerable to. Krista, would you go so far as to say that providing people with what I'm going to call trustworthy understandable and useful information in the context we're talking about would actually help to counter some of the more um, some of the wilder fears that go around and some of the misunderstandings of the type that you're talking about in other words is it does information help to allay unnecessary fear yeah the right kind of information i've been to quite a few you know, groups uh, recently in our consultation events, quite a few groups where we've got brought 50 to 25 seniors together to talk about what their concerns are. And in some groups, I noticed that there are very educated seniors, and in that context, they teach each other. Like, organizations that can build on the knowledge base and resiliency of seniors to support seniors to teach each other, it's a very powerful model, and I see it working effectively over and over and over again. But another piece that I would want to say about how we, we offer services in a way that helps protect seniors is we need to be conscious about how institutions, as they change with technological advance, actually might be rendering seniors more vulnerable. And I'll give you one example. One example is more and more people are encouraged to have do their banking electronically or online over the computer or to go to the bank machine and use their card. Seniors are discouraged from going up to a teller and doing a transaction involving an, an individual. And that's, you know, because institutions recognize they can save staffing costs by encouraging seniors to use um, the bank machine. But what we know is that seniors are less comfortable doing that. And what happens is, in a number of instances, especially where the senior might have either issues with technology or might just have physical limitations, is they wind up giving their passwords to somebody else. Maybe a caregiver who's a family member and trustworthy, or maybe a private caregiver who's not trustworthy, or maybe someone else. But the more we kind of technologify the, t the seniors' experience of dealing with their own money, we actually make them more vulnerable if they aren't culturally comfortable with dealing with this new technology. Would you go so far as to say then that it's important for um, kind of organizations we're talking about like banks, government agencies, law enforcement, and so on, to be consciously senior-friendly. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. Senior-friendly in lots of different levels. But in, in some instances, that might mean for, for community policing, you need to send an officer over to the community center to do a presentation on the role of the RCMP and, and, and the community police in responding to fraud and how they can be helpful. Sending a pamphlet or creating a website is going to help some family caregivers, but it's not necessarily going to help that senior who isn't as technology-friendly. So dealing with people, is people talking, is a fundamental way that seniors get their information. Right. Now, 
let's look at the bad side of all of this and say if a senior or a family caregiver believes that the senior's identity has been stolen, what are the things they should consider doing? Well, one piece is they want to act fairly quickly. Your money can disappear very quickly when someone has your number, so you want to move quickly. It depends on which piece of identity has been stolen, but if it's associated with your um, it's your credit card or it's your finance, your password number or your bank account number, you want to contact your financial institution right away. They can shut that account down. You can open up a new one. They can get you a new number. They can make changes so you're not associated with that number, and they can stop the card, and that will protect your finances. Um, if it's, if it's um, your social insurance number, you need to contact a different government institution, Service Canada, and if it's your if you're, it's your medical number, you're going to have to contact MSP and Ministry of Health. So it depends on which kind of number has been taken, or it could be something else entirely. But the other piece is, you know, it, if you uh, people may be fearful of calling the police, but it's often appropriate to call the RCMP, and if if your identity has been stolen and to report the crime, and they can follow up in different ways. And the other piece is that the RCMP is tracking these these um, incidents. And so the more, I would say, seniors, particular seniors fraud type events are reported to the police, it helps them to understand what are the big issues and to develop um, responses, not just to your one incident, but to, to respond generally to how to protect seniors from identity fraud and fraud more broadly. And there are other organizations like the Anti-Fraud Call Center. I can provide that number if it's helpful, which is a general nationwide toll-free number that seniors can call if they feel immediately if they feel like their identity has been compromised. So this is an, raises an interesting question, doesn't it, or an interesting matter, which is where seniors become a very important source of information, almost leads, you could call them, for law enforcement and other organizations that are attempting to grapple with and prevent um, senior abuse. I guess that's right, isn't it? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why we're learning so much now about specific types of frauds that target seniors is that seniors are reporting it. They are talking in their communities, they're talking to their support people and their family members, and they actually are reporting to the RCMP. Very, very important. That, again, is sort of community interaction with, with the system, isn't it? In other words, we're not leaving it to the government system or the healthcare system or the police system or anything else. What we're actually doing as a community, as seniors and in other contexts as well, people who are not yet seniors are saying, we've observed something, here's something you should know. And um, that information actually becomes a vital form of research an investigation for the system. Now, at that point, um, we have to take our break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Krista James. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. 
We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voice America. America.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Krista James. Our topic is identity theft and vulnerable family members, what family caregivers should know. So let's now talk about increasing protections for seniors and improving help for family caregivers, caring for family members vulnerable to identity theft. So Krista, what more do you want to see done to help family caregivers recognize, reduce or report risks of identity theft for seniors they're caring for? Would you like uh, legal solutions or non-legal type solutions, Gordon? From the heart is what I'd like you to respond. Yeah. Um, Well, I think one thing that I think is important to underscore is that family caregivers are already working really hard. Family caregivers generally, my, my experience anyway, and in talking to family caregivers, is that family caregivers often have a full-time job or, and they come home and do more care. They do more care in the morning. And they don't have time to be on the Internet all the time learning about the latest frauds or doing research. We need to make information really accessible to family caregivers um, to not put extra strain on their already demanding lives. Um, so I think we need to think about really simple ways to get information out. We need to think about where do where do family caregivers already go? Um, one of the places they go is to medical appointments. Think about all the uh, and just come up with a list of all the places where they already go and provide the information there in a really easy format, and so that they don't have to go hunting for it. So I think doctors' offices and emergency wards, for example, are a really good place to put up posters with really basic information on what to do and to hand out cards that say, here's the number to call. But I think the one thing that really helps explain identity fraud is storytelling. And maybe I haven't even done enough of that today in this interview, but I think people learn about identity theft in ways that they really remember when they hear somebody else's story. So, 
it's really important to get those stories out there of victimization. And even though they can be sometimes negative, but get those stories out there about how people got taken advantage of and how they stopped it and how they said no and how they protected themselves. Right. I agree with you. Now, next question is, what's your message to governments and others concerned with elder law? Uh, and the, mes- the message would be about improving protection of seniors against identity theft. So what's your message to them? Well, I guess one piece that I like to underscore a lot is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Seniors are not all the same. And the same communication strategy for raising awareness and for providing help is not going to work for every population. So I think that governments and other organizations need to talk to different populations of seniors and ask them, what are the ways you've been taken advantage of? What is the kind of response that's going to work for you? And then move forward from there. I think too often what we see, maybe due to resource issues, is we talk to one group of English-speaking seniors who are really well-connected and get ideas from them. But immigrant populations have very different experiences. Aboriginal people living on reserve have very different experiences and very different vulnerabilities due to um, settlement claims where they get funding for historical abuse, for example. So different populations have different experience, and we really need to tailor our responses to address their particular needs. Same question, but now your message to family caregivers. When When family caregivers have family members who they think may be vulnerable to identity theft, what's your message to the family caregivers? Well, I think the first I would always want to say is be gentle with yourself. You're already working really hard. So, you know, you are often a portal of information for your your family member. Um, but you need to be reasonable what you can actually accomplish and with all your time. And sometimes that means sub-delegating to someone else. But if, you're, if care is being sub-delegated, you know, to another person who's been hired or someone in that care facility, then we need to make sure our family members understand how to protect themselves to not give away their information. And so sometimes that's, we need a list of basic information people can give their family members to help keep them safe, but when they're not there to protect themselves and when they're not articulate, when they no longer have any capacity for conversation protection, you do your best to protect your family member, but you can't, you can't do everything. And sometimes we need to re- remember that and just do the best that we can. What's your message to seniors? Um, Well, I think that seniors have a lot of power to keep each other safe. And the way they keep each other safe, in part, is by staying connected and telling stories. Our Probably the biggest population of volunteers in Canada is seniors. Seniors are out there staying connected to other seniors and keeping each other safe. And seniors are the backbone of all of our nonprofit organizations. So... Part of what I always say to seniors is thanks, because all of our institutions would fall apart if you weren't there doing this work. And then how can, think of the basic thing of having a cup of coffee with a neighbor actually helps protect your neighbor, because your neighbor will talk to you and tell you about that strange phone call, that great phone call, about money they got the other day. Staying connected is one of the most powerful ways to keep each other and ourselves safe and sharing stories. Two things to respond to you. First of all, um, staying connected, being connected. As we said before in 
earlier parts of this discussion is profoundly important because it goes back to us being human beings, of being groups that work together, that support each other, that protect each other. So that's profoundly important. And given also something I've noticed on this show is that people who've been through uh, some kind of tough time involving family caregiving are very often keen to stop, look over the shoulders and give a helping hand to other people who are just starting out on the road. And there are many seniors who fall into that particular category and are therefore extremely keen to do what they can to help others. And then also to say that back to the question of vulnerabilities, it is that um, we, when we go into an institution, and you mentioned this, or, you know, into a long-term care facility, we have to trust the people who are looking after us. There's no other way. We may be not just vulnerable, we may not even be conscious at times. So, therefore, that points, I think, to a need for a certain amount of caution on the part of the family, the family caregiver, not to frighten everybody and to, and to alarm, create false alarms, but rather to say, be cautious because people in hospitals are busy and they can't watch over everything. You have to take some responsibility for yourself and so do we as family caregivers. Now, just very quickly, is that, would you, could you accept that last message that I made about some degree of personal responsibility? Is that fair? Absolutely. It's, it's personal responsibility for the senior and for the caregiver at some point, but then also recognizing that these fraudsters are really sophisticated. Yeah. They're, they're going to... They have mastered the art of taking advantage of people. Right. We can provide people with information so that they can help protect themselves, but, but at a, some t- it just could happen to you. And then, you, you know, if you respond quickly, you can mitigate the damage and move on and help protect other people in your communities by speaking out about your story. Right. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the point where I'm afraid this episode has come to an end. So I want to say, first of all, thank you to Krista for sharing with us all these insights, your your own experience and your advice. And on behalf of all of us, I wish you and all your colleagues every success in your work because it's profoundly important um, to many, many people. And your balanced advice, not to be too afraid, but on the other hand, to depend on trustworthy information, I think is, and work in communities and tell stories and work with each other, I think is something that I would like to emphasize, stress, and advocate to everybody who's listening. Now, thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about topics, ideas for topics, or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. And in our next episode, we'll talk about moving from caregiver to care partner. So please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.